It's like the body's ability to just pick up germs, bank shot it off the back of the room. Oh, or feel socks on your feet when, like, you really don't want it to do that. Or just pick up frequencies that neither you nor your body fucking enjoy. That is just a universal... What's the opposite of a superpower? Underpower. It's a universal underpower. I think there are, like, memes or something like that that's referred to this as scumbag brain or scumbag body or something of the like. I buy it. Just, I buy know, it. I buy it, that as a meme a meme platform, a meme it, premise. When, when it does something just so supremely unuseful to both you and it, you wonder why it was programmed to do that at all. Unrelated to that, and actually unrelated, not even sarcastically unrelated, I have been injured for about two weeks, and it is almost as bad as the hangover I gave myself last week. How bad is it? Thank you, Yakov Smirnov. You see, 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 see how bad of a pitch that is, and you keep fucking doing it? <laughs> There's nowhere to fucking go with that. Nowhere. Listen. <laughs> Here's how bad it is, Yakov. I got tested for the second time because the chest pain was bad enough that I thought I had the fucking Roni. <laughs> You'd have had a fever. That's like, I, I think that's the thing, right? It, that is a thing. Only my brain was more focused on owies. There are owies in my center parts. Mm. Why are my insides full of light? Have I been betrayed by a joking man? <laughs> <laughs> that guy's recruitment pitch must be fucking a well-oiled machine it can't be that difficult to find um adherence i know a lot of fucking dumbasses i guess if we just assume that the population of people that will follow the purple suit march is just sort of adjacent to the number of people that would make america great again well think of not how- necessarily the same slice but just the number of malcontent archetypes are going here well think of how many people believe that um that marvel was paying reviewers to give uh batman v superman bad reviews those are the those are the people that joker is going for those are those are his people that movie is still fascinating as an autorial blockbuster fuck-up These days, if a blockbuster eats shit, it is normally committed to death. Like, it is super corporatized into a nothing product. They gave him his license, and he drove into a fucking wall. And I was like, wow, this is someone's vision. An idiot's terrible, terrible vision. Good luck with the Snyder cut, numbnuts. Yeah, it'll have Darkseid in it this time. It's... Woo! You know... Oh, Sinestro is a villain that I like, and he was in Green Lantern, and he didn't make it better. Was that Sinestro, or was that Sornorstro, a CGI monstrosity? Oh, I'm not gonna, I, I, I'm not gonna pretend that it didn't happen. I'm, I'm over that part of my. Well, I actually, I do pretend that Korra didn't happen. So, so I. Yeah, you kind of run on North Korea rules on that shit, man. <laughs> I pretend that. Three of the uh, four seasons of Cory didn't happen, which brings us to tonight's episode, the topic for tonight's episode, which is book three of The Legend of Korra. Book three change is actually a piece of postmodern art where they pretend there were two, like, unspoken, unwritten pieces of content before this season. And it's a really cool, like, experiment. Like, you know, the audience sort of filling in the blanks mentally yeah, as they jump into to, these characters. You kind of have to imagine that there were these things that happened, and they certainly imply it. Like, apparently two of the characters in this were in a relationship prior to this, and things are still awkward. And also there's this, um, this, this dumb kite named Vatu who shows up for a really quick flashback. Yeah, yeah, if on. I have one critique of it, it's that the whole, like... When they flash back to these two seasons, it's like a rip on the whole Ember Island thing. It's not too much, but it's like, okay, okay get on with this. Oh, um, I do not think that I mentioned this in the last episode, but I need to put a little bit of a black mark on um, Avatar The Last Airbender's record, um, which is the good news, I guess, is that it does not affect the show itself. It's not a black mark against the show. It's a black mark against the show's legacy. The Ember Island Players is a very funny episode and also probably the first episode I can remember where a show 
acknowledges that it has a fandom and is an open conversation with that fandom and that led nowhere good for anyone so now you have me imagining aaron ahaz having some kind of fucking oppenheimer moment looking down at this script and saying now we are the enders of worlds and that's a really fun idea which would make the dragon prince some kind of nobel peace prize effort to let light and sun back into the world. Dragon Prince has got a whole bunch of uh, whole bunch of Avatar jokes in it. I can imagine. I can imagine. This episode is brought to you by the Dragon Prince. <laughs> it's uh, there's there's a gag in I think I don't know like the second or third season. I don't really care. Um, where uh, the, the the main character who's voiced by um Jack Decina, who is of course um Sokka's voice actor, um, where he runs into a boomerang and he like recognizes it from a past life or something (laughs) okay they can see through the veil a little this entertains me Hmm. all right so book three um book three change i'm probably going to be referring to it as season three at least some of the time Mm -hmm. sorry this season is as miraculous to me as it is anomalous i understand it i understand it for a very specific reason and i'm gonna dump some backstory on you Mm -hmm. i have except for one that I've married, basically done the stupid one-off boomerang thing with every ex that I've had. So I was waiting for book three, because I knew that midnight text was coming after the fucking shit show breakup that book two was. Mm. It was just me and book two screaming at each other in a restaurant, saying we never wanted to fucking see each other again. And then two weeks later... Then two weeks later, book three comes out. Baby, I can change. I've got this job now. I've dropped the drugs. I outlined the plot. And it's a really fun... You find yourself enjoying it in a sort of action thriller kind of way, which is cool. Especially in the uh, latter half. I mean... Yeah, it's a good season television. I think season three definitely has its problems. I would call it the fourth best season of the Avatar franchise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely has its problems here and there. Um, but everything just adds up at the end in, in, in a very satisfying hole or into a very satisfying hole. Uh, and even the shit that I didn't love in the first half of the season did lead to um, to fun payoffs in the second half of the season. It's very much a outliner's season of television. You're not getting the uh, sort of... I don't know why Naked Lunch is my stock metaphor for things that have literally no structure but are just entertaining as individual pieces. I did not read that. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I just know that Burroughs was on just all sorts of fucking drugs all the time. Sam's point here, or maybe I'm putting words in his fucking mouth, my point here is that the season builds on itself well. Yes, Yes, in ways that you don't really see coming, um, but do not come literally out of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. That would be bad. Um, <laughs> they would be bad if they did that, but they didn't. It's good. Um, do you want to give them the Trey Parker theorem? Oh, what, the um, the whole but therefore thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you were talking about that. I think that's more your point. More my point? That's true. All right, so um, the guys behind South Park, which is in no way behind the nihilism infecting our generation, have a great clip on the old YouTube. That's a speech they gave at NYU. And it's basically their philosophy on screenwriting. I'm not saying this is a law of physics because there's all kinds of... It's creativity. You can do all kinds of weird shit. Mm -hmm. But it's a good guideline for a, I would say, conventional program. And kind of a background secret of the whole Avatar thing is that I keep on using words like brass roots or foundations, but it is a, in a lot of ways, a conventional, like, epic fantasy tale. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good guy for a conventional story. And essentially, it's their therefore, but, and, and thing. Yeah. And it's just a guiding line for your scripts or script outlines where, in the sequence of events, if you find that the gaps between events are triggered by therefores or buts a lot, you are in a good place. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you end up using the word and a lot, you're in a bad place. Or and then. Or and then. Yeah, I think I think you got it. More and then is the one that you want to avoid. You want to avoid things just happening, you know, kind of apropos of nothing, uh, just in a sequence, right? You want yeah. one thing to lead to another or one thing to happen in spite of another thing. A thing that's fun about book three, if you really disliked book two like I did, mm-hmm. is that it 
it is a great therefore butt line, but the core event it therefore butts from on his little diagram is some stupid shit in book two, and I find that very amusing that... What I'm saying, kids, is never give up. <laughs> because they were standing in these ruins, holding the sand in their hand, and working, not like retconning a thing, just working from logical outcomes of choices they made, they made a good season of television. Yes. Um, that's, that's why this season is something of a miracle, right? Because one of the biggest problems that I had, top ten biggest problems that I had uh, with uh, with book two was the whole, why did you fucking link the spirit world and the material world? There are fucking demons in there. <laughs> uh, but they yeah. don't address this. Like cowards. Um, so instead, you know, like there's a bunch of, you know, friendly little poofy fairies. The, the, poofy fairies, uh, I don't know, maybe... You fucking cowards. I think, do the demons not get out much? I oh, I know, they probably just instilled themselves in the highest levels of government or something. Co likes to stay in his hole, that's probably what Bright would tell me. I'm just imagining the Co super pack. <laughs> this is how I get my jollies. All right, so I want to start with um with character bits, right? Okay. Um, for starters, when you say bits, you mean literal comedic bits or just? No, no, no. I mean just how they write the characters in okay. this season, right? For starters, um, as 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 I was mentioning as we were uh, rewatching this season, this is the closest that I think the writers ever got to the idea of Korra as they originally envisioned her. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's just little things. There's this great moment early on in the season where one of the Earth Queen's uh, minions is trying to handle her, and she just puts him on the fucking ground like it was nothing. But It's nice. Yeah. It is. And, like, that's, that's like, the sort of thing that you kind of figured, you know, she should be doing this whole time. And um, I think in, in book two, she was basically just yelling a lot. <laughs> book two is some kind of youtube a bridge series parody of the character that they reach at times in book three. And honestly, when it comes to book three, Korra is better in this season. So much better that mentally, I kind of have her filed away as a different character called Avatar Banjo. I don't think that's necessarily fair. Well, just hear me out, because Avatar Banjo can think, and Avatar Banjo can fight. <laughs> And Avatar Banjo has insight into their own conflicts and other people's. I what have we called the Avatar of seasons one, two, and four? Avatar Banjo. Okay. And, and pretend for a second that this is Korra as she was always meant to be. This is the purest form of the character. This is the most it works form of the character. All right, so this is Korra classic, and we'll call the other one New Korra or Avatar Banjo. Sure. Which is unfortunate, because it means I won't get to say Avatar Banjo for the rest of the episode. Oh, you clever motherfucker. You can say it in the next episode, because I have no fucking arguments with that. Fair. Fair. But yeah, the problem here is that a uh, Korra classic disappears shortly after the credits roll on this mother. It's a, it, it is a shame. Besides just little character beats... Or just little character notes. Like, uh, at one point, she pushes Bull in out of a chair when he's wasting time, and it's good. Um, uh, it's the attitude that drives her in this season that feels noticeably different than the other ones. She has this um, a stronger sense of justice in it that's way more compelling than her whole teenage rebellion thing in the first season and whatever the fuck her motivations were in the second season. Uh, you can call this character development, but it doesn't really come from anywhere. I'm going to chalk this up to the positive influence of uh, Katie, um, either Matilla or Mattia, I'm not actually sure which one, um, who is a writer and a script editor who, as I understand, was much more heavily involved in the production of this season than others. Shout out to to, uh, to Katie, Matilla, Mattia, yeah, whichever we, one. I bowed down to her three times at noon. So when it comes to that, I think that's a interesting point that it's not... Character development isn't the word because there is not like an event or thought process that leads to her just being more clearly drawn in this season. It seems to, I, I think they just assumed out. that this is how she was coming across all along. And that is fucking fascinating to me. I don't know. But, I think there might have been a come to Jesus moment backstage. <laughs> <laughs> 
where they're like, guys, guys, problems. They had their version of fucking Bret Hart throwing shit backstage, asking what kind of operation this is, drawing C-N in the air. Um, There's definitely a point there. So, so Cora just works so much better in this season than in every single other fucking uh, season of this show. I mean, it, yeah, in the first two, I, th- I think they keep on trying to tell you how you should be feeling about Cora, like Mako putting his hands on his shoulder saying, you're so strong and brave and unyielding, and here she will smack a bitch, and that's... <laughs> I want to give a begrudging shout-out to Bolin in this season. The terminal problem with his character, and I kind of touched on this, is that he's a fucking moron, and his antics are the opposite of charming for it. Uh, they are intrusive and time-wasty rather than endearing and quirky the way that they think that they are. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, I get it. It's a reflection of his sense of inadequacy. But since he was still just impossibly useless <laughs> in the first two seasons, it didn't actually amount to much. So here, here though, in this season, we see, um, we see them do something interesting with it. For starters, we get this thing that I call the long Bolin gag. It's a gag format that I noticed at least twice, where he'll start going on about something, always to Mako, and much to Mako's consternation, uh, before taking this really sharp left turn at the end, and it looks good on him. Uh, Second, his character arc this season culminates in something he can actually be proud of, uh, the lava bending thing, rather than, whoops, I fucked up, let's (laughs) spin an episode on how I'm a moron. As it was with the Night of a Thousand Stars. I like how it wasn't co-opted by any propaganda or fascist movements in this season. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I've got a whole voice that I'm going to use uh, (laughs) next episode. Uh, I still need to to perfect it, but, you know, there's going to be a voice. Uh, Let it be known that Sam Lago is a craftsman. It kind of rhymes... Because it's not like the Bolin concept changed at all. But someone holding a gun sat them down and said, Tell me what you're trying to do here. Tell me what you're trying to do. Make it work. Put put that effort and put it towards something. Something interesting. Something that has meaning. Yeah. Mako also spends this season firing on all cylinders. They have him do detective shit, and he doesn't act like a scumbag. How fucking hard was that? Yeah, we get the sort of truest expression of his progression in the sort of 50% to 75% chunk of the season. His char- in the timeline, yeah. His characterization in this uh, actually served as a primary source of inspiration for one of my own projects, but I'm not here to talk about my OCs. This is not Twitter. Uh, no, no, um, I um, fundamentally support self-promotion. You're, you're obligated to do that. I'm not right talking now. about my OCs. It's just against who I am and what I believe. Oh, and um, after two seasons of swinging at sliders, they finally figured out this time that the most interesting relationship he has is his relationship with Bolin. So the fact that they spend the butter part of the season doing sibling shit together just really helps both of them out as characters. What if I told you there is a single digit under five number of lines about his prior relationships? It's great. I, I have a thing about that. I was going to save it for later, but... You can, you can. I believe in the integrity of your diagram. It should be mentioned. It should be mentioned that the season has the least amount of relationship drama out of all of them, and is also the best of the four. Correlation does not necessarily equal causation. I know, but I can recognize a pattern when I see one. I think that science would say we have an amazingly huge sample size from which we can draw conclusions. <laughs> Yeah, they really tripled down on the uh, sibling stuff in this one. There's it's also the whole... It was so good. Sue Lin thing. I have chosen to believe that the writing staff reproduce via budding, and they, however, bud in groups of 12 that gave them huge pods of siblings. Mm. I'm saying it's the lived-in experience <laughs> that really gives it that texture speaking of which i'm glad that they did something uh with lynn this time around given how much of a glorified plot device she was in season two and god did, did, did it like, was weirder were, than that it was weirder than that because she a was really... a glorified plot device but she also had the screen time of someone who was more than that if you were a wasn't... 
big Lin fan. Season two must have sucked for you worse than it sucked for even me as a big Mako fan. Your organs nearly caved in on themselves. Yeah, I can't imagine how bad it was for someone who thought Lin was really cool. Oh yeah, this one goes out to uh, Jeanette. Um, We know you're listening to this from my hospital after what uh, season two did to you, but... uh... You should probably not be in a hospital right now, Jeanette. (laughs) It's time to move. Like, you should hire a a live-in nurse or something like that. Just get away from, you know, just get away from it all. Yeah, we're going to go Republican Party here and say that it's time to get a few steps in on those bootstraps. But yeah, Lynn does come up on a stronger tack. I do enjoy her whole thing with her sister. sister, The unresolved shit that she and her sister have was extremely familiar to me just speaking from experience uh, mm-hmm. out of respect for other entities i will refrain from elucidating on that but what i can talk about is how much it reminded me of uh katara's struggles to deal with a thing that was over and it's technically resolved but here's all of these bad feelings over oh here. i love katara's background racism <laughs> Here's all these bad feelings right here. They don't really care if they make sense or not because that's not how people work. And Lynn's leftover resentment does her great credit in this season and almost makes Toph's reappearance in book four tolerable. Almost. That thing is also plagued by the ecosystem it's in. And, you know, wait, hold on. We're talking about season three, so, so and, and it's character bits. So I'm going to arc, instead of complaining about Toph, I'll say a thing that's better. Because I was annoyed by how fucking old Katara was just the elemental icon of the word grandma. She just became a generic grandma. It's not the same character. She has the same hair loopies. That's it. Old Zuko feels like Zuko got old. He feels like an older, perhaps wiser version of Zuko. He's calmed down some. He has a daughter now. He carries that same expression around a lot when things happen. It's a, it's a it's a nice touch. It's he a nice kind of still can't catch a break. <laughs> like he doesn't uh, he doesn't job or anything like that. But ugh. he's still fucking fighting an uphill battle yeah. every single day. They hit my dragon. They hit my dragon. <laughs> hey, so here's some really great news. Hey, boss. Asami is in this season. Asami is technically in this season. And here's some even better news. She and Korra are friends now. They are buddies. I feel more sexual tension with the $400 microphone we are looking into than I observed between them this entire time. So it's because they had not made that decision yet, and it's they, very clear. It's very clear that they oh, had not uh, for made the that decision yet. three of you that have not bothered to fucking at least Wikipedia some serious shit on this, these are uh, jokes about. There's a fairly amusing dust up at the end of this show because in the last couple seconds 32 seconds 15 seconds of this program Korra and Asami link hands and I can only describe it as like the bank robbery version of the woke Disney thing that Lindsay Ellis likes to get at (laughs) only they have the half testicle to put it in the first and second and third act of a thing as opposed to the pistols out put the money in the fucking bag i'm woke <laughs> let's go guys thing that they did with the cora asami relationship all right credit where there are due. there's mitigating factors here Nickelodeon literally just did not let them write a relationship arc for those two characters and they sort of they wrote around those restrictions. But the credit that I'm not giving them is the fact that they obviously decided that they were going to write this relationship arc while they were writing season four. It comes out of nowhere and is very unearned whether they were allowed to quote unquote write it or not. Her most significant role in this season is she's in a gag where she plays Paisho of Bolin and... <laughs> And then There's a whole wins. airship thing that There's they think was more thing. significant, but no, no, this is their most important thing. I know. Uh, and then, then here's the thing, though. There was that one random mook um, who she got. She really got him. She got him with her with her electro glove, so that 
that the rest of the party who was with her wouldn't get tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they really saved that 2.5 seconds of effort on one of their parts. (laughs) I should fucking double down on how much I dislike this character because I've already made enemies of all of her fans. So dislike is a really weird term to use for Asami because you're telling me you, you dislike things like water and <laughs> bread and unscented air. No, I love bread. Asami is more like, I don't know, dust. <laughs> sure, like a if neutral, you get too much Asami in your lungs, your finale doesn't make sense. to be certain, but also, <laughs> I definitely don't want that much of it. The man doesn't lie. <gasps> oh. So we're talking about how they handle individual characters. Mm-hmm. Like a black hole, I am just drawn towards the redemption and elevation of Tenzin. I didn't actually have any notes about Tenzin, so this is, this one's yours. Fair enough, fair enough. Welcome to a Dale Freestyle TV. Essentially, the character conflicts... This led to a bit where I rapped, and I edit these, so it's gone now. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Tenzin's arc is way better handled here. Yes. And not just in By the general way that things are perhaps better handled as just storytelling elements <laughs> in book three than two, but Tenzin's arc in this season has a progression and a focus and a clarity that is actually even better than just other elements of this season. Tenzin's arc is so well handled in this season that I forgot about how poorly handled it was in the last season when I was initially talking about all of these characters in our first episode before I revisited season two. That's how good his arc is in this season. Go on. You know, you're right. Yeah, it's a true fucking character redemption. We have literally waste paper binned shittier moments in his timeline because this happened and... That shit doesn't matter no more. And he just gets one of the best last stands in Western animation yes. fueled Holy by, shit. directly by his like character thesis and motivations and uncertainties up until this point it's so good it's oh god it's fucking like i said this season is a fucking miracle where it, the fuck was that miracle in season four i really don't want to fall into this trap this therefore but thing just because i love the movie machete kills <laughs> in which no scene has anything to do with anything that happened before it <laughs> but the consequentialism in this particular plot line just elevates the whole thing and things feel like they mean more you know i was all over book two with you know this fight is so well blocked and looks cool but i don't give a fuck we get the opposite in tenzin's plot line here you get a fight that i think if you were to break it down into spots like a robot it's probably equally cool to like i don't know i like that tarlock fight in the fucking book one thing Korra versus tarlock i think that's yeah. well blocked it's a good fight yeah what happens with him and the Red Lotus group in this is probably just equal in terms of choreography. But the magic that a little investment, a little storytelling, a little grist coming out of the mill mm-hmm. can give one of these things just elevates the entire production. Yes. I'm gonna yeah. I'm going to touch on that as well in a little bit. But we have been ignoring the punk singer in the room. We have been ignoring the punk singer in the room because talking about this as a miracle, it's been easier to talk about the parts that have already been there in a way. The new shit that comes in feels real good. So Zaheer is the series' best villain, uh, and kill those who disagree. <laughs> he does. Zaheer is better than if they had a good answer to what Amon was up to and why. I actually have points about Amon. A whole bunch of my thesis about Zaheer has to do with Amon and how Amon was written and how Amon was treated. So sit back, everyone, because I've been thinking pretty hard about this one. Cool, cool. I just have my uh, seatbelt clicked in here. I am ready for that one uh, Doctor Doom ride that drops you up and down and fucking up again. At Islands of Adventure. I've been on it, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I have finished my Boulevardier. 
uh, and I am ready to fucking go. He does everything correctly, or they do everything correctly with him uh, that they fucked up with Amon. As yeah. I voiced in the episode on book one, um, <laughs> pretty loudly and at length, uh, Amon's air of menace came from how mysterious he was, right? He was mysterious. You didn't know what he was up to. You didn't know, like, what his game was. Um, but the second you learned who he was, all of that disappeared, and you were only left with what they gave you, which was not much. Yeah. Zaheer, on the other hand, he's kind of an open book, though, isn't he? We learn very quickly who he is, uh, what his origins are, and um, the most mysterious things about him are his motivation and his ultimate goal. And even then, they aren't very hard to figure out because that's not really the point, the way it was with Amon. Yeah. Um, I hate to believe her the point, but when um, you stake everything interesting about a character on a reveal, then it better be a good one, and Amon's just wasn't. But they don't do that with Zaheer. There are two things about him that are extremely interesting. First, you learn more and more about his ideology, and his ideology is that he's Buddhist and comes Superman. He is Buddhist and comes Superman. He is literally a fucking Sternerian anarchist in the middle of a fucking American animation production. I never thought I would rattle that sentence off before 20 fucking 45. Right? So that happened in reality. Fuck and, yeah! And I... Is there? I need a positive version of the quote. My soul looks back in wonder, right? Like <laughs> it's the so way that people describe looking at fucking slavery or race riots. I just, <laughs> I enjoy this man so much. And I'm interrupting your whole spiel here. Go, go, go it's far. okay. No, my notes are only just fuck yeah and holy shit, fuck yeah <laughs> about all that. Um, second, and this is probably more important as much as I love the first point, is that he begins the season with. Nothing besides his recently acquired airbending uh, and has to enact his evil scheme with basically no resources. This puts him very heavily in contrast with every other antagonist in this thing. Like, Amon had an entire faction of equalists. Unalak was the chieftain of the Northern Water Tribe and had already cut a deal with Vatu. And Kuvira is basically in charge of the entire former Earth Kingdom by the time Book 4 gets going. And the fact that Zaheer is not just this monolith who is to be opposed, uh, the fact that he has his own journey that he goes on, that stands out. Like, you as a writer, right, have the ability to start an antagonist off. I do have off. that ability. You have the ability to start an antagonist off in a position of great power and influence, uh, whether they honestly deserve to be there or not. They're there because you said so. Uh, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with this, uh, but it locks you into a very specific story structure where the heroes must struggle to bring the villain down. But what if you start a villain off at the same level you'd start some humble hero off at? You open yourself up to a ton of new possibilities as to what the uh, villain's threat is, how they go about achieving their various ends, and so on. Like, every time I see this kind of villain, I like it. This I is... think there's even more of a more building blocks appeal to this structure. What's that? In a strange, direct way, it almost comes down to just what can you do with the screen time you gave them. Mm -hmm. A lot of conventional villains, blah, blah, naked lunch, whatever. You know, no, no, this is the only good way to do this. Fuck it. That's an arbitrary rule now. All right. But the real huge benefit this has, conventional villains sort of start and end at the end of their personal journey. Mm -hmm. And their scenes often come down to, even if they are acting and enacting a plan, person going, yes. Yes. <laughs> the old death clock, we wait kind of mantra. Yes. And when you open this kind of journey up to your villain half, like this or your fucking Nano, what's a good comparison? Maybe Aldo Noah Zero? Whatever. The point is that it just makes the... Oh. If you are giving equal or near equal... Shigaraki. Shigaraki, yeah. Shigaraki, yeah. Um... yeah sh the the, the Hiraki is a good comparison. If you're giving equal, which here is more like 30, 60, but whatever, like time to the villain slot, it just makes that time come way more alive. Yeah. It is also why we have spent maybe 12 minutes outside of a fight with all for one. <laughs> oh. Not for nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I find that uh, of all the antagonists on the show who are treated as having a point, uh, because this show loves talking about ideology, right? Uh, Zaheer actually, you know, he does. 
Oh, um, sorry. I did a visual gag on our podcast again. I'd like to apologize to our fan base. I actually did put my hands together and mouth the words "thank you." Uh, maybe and it's not. Villains can have not a point. I went on about how I love Ozai's screaming asshole thing. But that, that, that's that's different because they're not positioning him as having a point, as having a point or an ideological like representation. Like Ozai isn't out there making impassioned defenses of monarchy as a structure. No, like I said, Ozai is a projection of Aang's anxieties about uh, failure, right? Um, but that's not the tact that they have adopted for villains in this show. And fine, they didn't need to do that. What they needed to do was have these villains have a point, and he's the only one who actually does. Like, maybe it's just the leftist utopian in me who wants his fully automated luxury gay space communism. But the... Dude, 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 dude it's, it's not just your inner thing, because... I, when I rammed on about this. Unlock's fundamentalist thing, if you actually know what the fuck your cosmology is, you can do all kinds of fun shit of a wackadoo fundy villain. I'm definitely getting to that. Okay. Uh, the whole rest of Legend of Korra is people with power being shitty about it. And it's not even just the antagonist. Like, look at President Raiko, right? Uh, and here's Zaheer being like, Fuck these people. Borders are lines that rich assholes drew <laughs> to make themselves feel powerful uh. and divide the rest of us. And because of what we've seen in this series and the last one, where an absolutist monarch damn near torts the entire world, guy's making a bunch of sense. Excuse me, I'm absolutist god king. Absolutist god king. Phoenix king. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, like Contrast this with Amon's imaginary societal ills uh, and Unalak's fucking nonsense about how people need to spear it harder or something. Uh, and I don't even need to tell you why Kuvira should have died a horrible, undignified death. The Amon thing really just makes me wonder if there should be a soft rule. Should there just be 1960s fucking segregation lines between twist villains and hypocrites? Been, like, you can philosophically undermine an entire work. I've been looking at the timeline for um, when season three... Uh, not season three. For when book one of Korra was released and when it had to have been written. And the whole thing is very, very zeitgeisty. You know, that's when Occupy Wall Street was happening, right? But they didn't... They just never... They never wrote those societal ills into the world. Not really. Fucking wild. Um, but yes, the point is not how much those two suck. Well, that is the point. But this other point... a little point, bit how much those two... It's a little bit the point. But the other point is how someone walked in with a book about something and threw it at another writer in the room. Read! Read! I don't agree with this! I don't want you to fucking agree with this! <laughs> Alright, so this season... um. Moving away from characters, right? Moving more towards structure. This season manages to have um, multiple plot threads and story arcs without becoming an unfocused mess the way that season two did. Things build in a very naturalistic feeling manner. Well, well not so naturalistic, but there's more. Or just I don't know. It just feels more orderly and palpably. Stuff yeah. goes places. Yeah. Like honestly, as I was watching this, I was rowing ever wary, knowing where the season would ultimately go, because you know, I had watched it some years ago, um, that what was happening in the first half would not end up having or being of much consequence in the latter half. Like I, I, I think I was wrong, ultimately. They take the first half of the series to give you the character beats, establish the stakes, and give you the proverbial Ming vase up on the mantelpiece, and mm -hmm. then they knock it the fuck down. Yeah, the first half is all about sort of getting you entrenched in the value of rebuilding this whole air nation yes, thing and exactly the air nation then spends the finale tied to the railroad tracks speaking of the new air air nation and i forgot to ring uh, to bring this up in the characters bit um mm -hmm. kai is he good is kai because I think there there's a case to be made that I, I have I some... do not think that Kai is as interesting as they think I think he is, but I do not think he is actively bad or a detriment to the program. That is not my politician's answer. I think Kai is 
okay, and they had high hopes for him. I think that they hit the correct beats with him, certainly. He starts out shitty and then redeems himself by uh, being not shitty, right? Alright, fine. Uh, A story of youth, mon. But, here's my... Here, here's my counterpoint. Um, his whole unmotivated kleptomania as the um as the aspect that darkens his character does often feel, at least in the first half, like a hijacking, as I've been describing it. Uh, because they needed to create conflict out of nowhere sometimes. Uh, and this was the best they could do with what they'd given themselves. I think that he'd have been way more interesting if he'd had, like, a violent streak or something from all the years he spent as a vagrant. You could have that... Um, tie into like a thread about the air nomad's dedication to pacifism and juxtapose it with Zahir's perversion of air mm-hmm. nomad philosophy, um, even as he capes for Guru Lugihima as hard as he does. But I am fanbooking right now, and I try to avoid that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's our one sign on the wall. It's the dark side path to aspiring creatives engaging in criticism. Don't fanbook. If I held the crystals. If it were me... <laughs> In fact, I have my own hands on how I think they could have just really easily threaded the needle, but you know what? We'll leave that in the darkness. We'll talk more about what is. All right, so this whole fucking Aladdin opening thing he's got going, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I am just with it. Because we need to get into the Earth Kingdom city anyway, and it takes us there in a relatively... It takes us to different parts of it in a way that is not necessarily contrived in the middle of their fucking quest. Maybe just entertaining to watch Mako and Bolin together in particular. It could very well be. It could be that they had a thing that uh, people would put up with, right? With Kai, and they used it to facilitate something that was genuinely good with Mako and Bolin. It is almost the opposite of like the way that some things just hurt more because they are in season two or four. I think mm-hmm. that... I'm I'm kind of whatever on the whole Kai thing. I wonder if Kai has stands that think we suck right now. It is very possible. Like, as, everyone's got stands, so I'm sure. I'm sure that there are at least one or two. As our communications are, I will pour through our Instagram comments and see <laughs> if the Kai Defense Force, or the uh, Kai Goku, as they are known, <laughs> come together. Um... Yeah, I, I don't have much else to By say. By the way, in about terms of better languages, character. you know the fucking navy in Japanese, just the symbol for fucking ocean is symbol for army. It's just ocean army. Do you know how much easier that is? Oh, you know somehow, much... if you um, the word for the word for airplane in German uh, just translates directly to flying thing. That's great. Um, and Krankenwagen, right? That's um, <laughs> that that's ambulance. It just means sick wagon. It just sounds so angry because it's German. Because it's German. The world's first ambulance driver, name it. Um, pen is Kugelschreiber, which I think means ink pencil. I refuse to believe that is not the name of a rebellious prince. And I will die under the belief that is the name of a rebellious German prince. <laughs> oh, I think so... if I were to critique the Kai thing... Sure. It does peak out. And it is a climax. He gets to do a heroic thing. Mm-hmm. But it does peak out, I want to say, 80% of the way through our runtime, which is probably fine in the abstract court of narrative judgment. But if you're talking about how it feels, it feels, if it, it's weird because it resolves and it feels like it doesn't resolve just because of its place in the fucking timing. Do you get, does that make sense? They needed to give that last 20% of the runtime to the main characters. Like, I understand. That makes sense, but there's a certain amount of screen time where you are one of the main characters, and that's the reason we're asking, is Kai good? Because he has a bunch of screen time. Like, after that? Just within the season. And his screen time does basically end when it climaxes again at that fucking airship spot. He's still there. He's still there, but he's a fucking hostage. I don't know, man. No, 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 no. Like, I mean, in the last episode, he's there, and he was... was I can't remember if it was him or Janora who suggests, hey, we should probably go get him. And then they go get him. All right, yeah, he's present. He's there. He's, he's there having completed his arc, and I'm pretty sure he's not really in um, season four that amazingly much because he has, in fact, completed his arc, and you know, that, was, that was all that they really had for him. 
I'm going back to my planet. <laughs> this is your planet. Ooh. Oh. So this season is a masterclass mm-hmm. in how to make a character look good in defeat. And this is so very important because defeat is just one of the constants in this show, isn't it? Yeah. If you enter this promotion, you're going to spend some time on your back. And the one question is, is this 2016 NXT or is this any other year main roster? (laughs) Uh, Cora, right, who spent book two getting her ass kicked um, and then won a supremely dumb final battle at its conclusion ends up losing the final battle of book three, but looks terrifyingly powerful while doing it. Uh, Really, Zaheer does not so much win as he does outlast her, Um, having been able to tilt the scales in his favor uh, earlier with the whole Mercury thing. I think it was supposed to be Mercury. Yeah. And and, and same goes for Tenzin's loss to the uh, Red Lotus, as you were mentioning earlier. It was never really in question that he um, Were they allowed to use the word Mercury? I feel like it came in at least once. Or maybe my imagination just painted that. I heard the words the poison a lot. The poison. They call it the poison. It's it, it clearly, it looks like mercury. It seems to be acting like mercury. It's a lot of fucking mercury. Um, she, she should have They died. really wanted to kill the Avatar. And it's uh, it's never really interesting that Tenzin would lose, but you see him fight on a level you've never seen him fight on before. Oh, just man. Cooks. It just, it feels so great because like this is the future of his people that he's fighting for now it's not just don't let Amon take people's bending away which is not really where his character was at or um uh, kmart sovereign is gonna make the world dark uh that's not where his character i'm was trying at not to steal a bunch of jokes from the internet about the dubstep gun that fucking vatu has <laughs> i will just say that he walks around saying this pains thee. <laughs> that had nothing to do with with Tenzin or who he was, but this this fight against the Red Lotus has everything to do with Tenzin and who he is and what he believes and what he is fighting for, right? And that makes this fight so fucking good. It makes the it makes I mean, his desperation yeah. so much fucking realer. The way the emotions are drawn in his end on this fight. They managed to instill a nobility into this losing moment that they either don't shoot for entirely in some major losses in the previous thing. Like if I just flash my brain back to fucking, I don't know, Korra just saying, you're a bloodbender. Welp, on my back I go. (laughs) I guess my point here is Mm -hmm. they find ways to... Either enhance the character, or even in just the minor ones, like, think about fucking Kaya and Boomy, who, by the way, I still don't give a fuck about. The thing about Kaya. The one fucking thing about Kaya. Because it almost demands my attention, right? Mm-hmm. There is this great moment about halfway through where Kaya just fucking makes Zaheer. And as ancillary as she is in this season and the last one, I think she's just not even there in book four, Having a character pick a really good time not to be a gullible moron can be a powerful moment for that character because it's the oh one yeah when she shouts Zaheer and it's and, 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 and it just immediately on uh, because it's the one I remember Kaya for in two seasons of her having fuck all to do like what do you remember Kaya for right she shows up I remember and that. she's kind of a hippie or something like that and that's kind of just she's there being kind of a hippie or whatever. Um, throughout, I don't know, maybe she tried cactus juice once in college. Something like that. But no, it is this moment right here, right? Because you as a viewer, right? Specifically you. Yes, you. Listen to this right now. Well, adjusting your left headphone, looking up, feeling somewhat disconcerted, checking underneath your seat for me. Okay. (laughs) When you're writing a character, right? The character could have important moments, right? In their arc. But, um... Kaya doesn't really have an arc. She's not a big enough character to have an arc. But you as a viewer, right? There's other moments. These are the moments that you pick up on in this character. Moments that define this character for you. And sometimes the writer, the creator, has no real control over this. And Kaya gets this one great little shining moment. Or she's just smarter than it. Or she's just 
she's smarter than the plot contrivance that seemed to want to have her be stupid in that moment. She's like, no, this yeah. is bad shit right here. Yeah, people, uh, they do way better jobs in, uh, Cor- jobs as in job jobbing, not jobs as in employment. Though you could argue that people have also been better at their jobs. What I was going to talk to when I was referring to Kaya and Boomy sure. was the was just that same Tenzin sequence where you know and I know that they these two are not going to win <laughs> this fight. No, but they lend it attention because they know they are basically acting as body shields to keep this from being a three-on-one conflict and it even makes things that sort of annoying like boomy's fucking mid-fight comedy spots work because it's just like what do i do what do i do what do i fucking do what do i fucking do <laughs> and there is still tension in the midst of someone doing their enhancement bit mm-hmm. and i like that take these little golden stars i put on the top of your fucking spelling quiz you spelt dramatic tension correctly. <laughs> so speaking of fights, right? Hit me. Sort of, sort of tangentially related to uh, to that. Uh, I think this season benefited a whole lot from a comparative lack of minions. I remember when we were watching this show, when we were much younger men, right? And we were trying to find things that we liked about this show. And you were telling me, and this... There's some dramatic art in here. You were like, oh man, man, all the fucking like faceless minions on this show are really like way more competent than usual, right? <laughs> and we were trying to kind of spin this as a point in the show's favor. And now the matrix is open before us. <laughs> now so, we can see the source code. So there was the Daily, right? Um, of course. But they were allowed to lose, or at the very least, not prevail in the season. Many of Korra's credibility problems uh, come from the fact that when you do this sort of thing as a serial, uh, where for Korra to just get past some minions in this scene or that one, it drastically shortened the season's arc, and we cannot mm-hmm. really have that, right? Um, you got uh, you got someone tapping their wristwatch in the corner. Like this is pr- especially pronounced in seasons two and four. Uh, Korra just cannot catch a break against a random dark spirit number thirty-two or a couple of metal-bending fascists, right? And it really undermines the fucking spinal column of her character. Exactly. Like, like, it's like every time she walks into a new fucking. I don't know, video game zone. It, it, it prolongs the season, which was their intention, right? But she looks like a fucking chump. Yeah. No such issues, though, in this season, where there are only, like, four mooks besides the Dai Li, and the Dai Li, right, still as formidable as ever, but they cannot stop Team Avatar from staging its whole rescue arc thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, rescue... <laughs> I wrote down rescue op, but my fucking <laughs> brain... <laughs> My fucking brain has been infected by anime that it became rescue arc once it, like, hit my lips. Oh, yeah, you also know that making the program Weeaboo Hell is, in many ways, slowly killing us. And we enjoy it. It's sort of a Lotus Eater machine kind of thing. It's nice. Like, what did Bukowski say? You find what you love and you let it kill you. I I just stare at a black TV screen and say, what will Natsuo do next? Of the other four, of the other four mooks, four minions right that show up and there's really only four that, that was the number that i counted besides the uh the bandits that they uh that they fight in that one episode very briefly oh yeah and those guys are who were pure there. mighty god king faceless mooks coming through <laughs> they they job they they, yeah. they serve their purpose uh Kor and asami looked good in that fight uh of yeah, the Kor other four good in that fight two two of them don't even fight they just kind of it's like, here's the poison. Uh, and the other two go down immediately because Asami needed something to do. I, I can't felt... stop. I can't stop being me. Dude, it's what fictional make-a-wish children it's so do easy. to you. It's, it's such fucking low-hanging fruit, but I can't stop. It's so tasty. I am watching them walk this terminally ill 12-year-old child up to the baseball diamond and a professional pitcher sort of just lobs this slow underhand towards them and they hit this soft bunt and the crowd as every elbow digs into every significant other's side goes wild for this child's behalf. They just absolutely lose their shit. They say, yeah, Sami, 
You did it. You did it. You're a grown-up character now. <laughs> we all believe in your effort. We're all very proud of you. I remember that your company is either called Future Industries or Next Industries. <laughs> if I cared more, I would edit myself down to choosing the correct ones. It's not happening. It's not It's not going to happen this time. <laughs> I believe you make airships in disappointment. I can't believe it, um, but I'm out of things to say about this season. Or at least things that I thought to say about this season. Because I love it, right? But I guess it's easier to talk about something you hate. Well, I'm going to get in some fun particulars because I'm uh, some kind of functional madman. Go for it. So I got to reintegrate myself into one of the most amusing things about this franchise, which is you can't really say kill that often. <laughs> we were, we were, uh, yeah, no, we were, we were riffing on that last and night. This season we? has one of the most famous and on-screen <laughs> deaths in the entire franchise. I with, but with a uh, spoiler line, whatever. It's a fucking series retrospective. You... It's from 2014. Is when this episode airs. By the way, Barack wins in 2008. So, yeah, so here, off's the Earth Queen. Because I know... It's what, really cool. It's a little fantasy world anarchist about your own black hand moment. And they just continue to say... Don't you he, mean black flag moment? I do mean black flag moment because I do not know how we didn't mention this. He's Zaheer is voiced by Henry fucking Rollins. He's voiced by Henry Rollins. fucking Rollins and he's awesome and it's a fucking kick-ass performance. Who, depending on which point on a three-point cultural diagram you come from, you either said, fucking Black Flag, really? Or, fucking Def Jam, really? Or, what? Blood up! Blood up! <laughs> Blood up! Yeah. Yeah, that, that is another... See, I, that's the thing. I, did, I was not introduced to Henry Rollins by his music. I was introduced to Henry Rollins by fucking Batman Beyond. <laughs> and but... then his music fucking art that and then was. him just showing up in random shit in the 90s this is a uh, my point to say where if you have a computer that cooks enough to emulate a ps2 play def jam fight for new york it's he was in that he ran the gym that was him yes he oh. ran the gym in def jam fight for new york and you are playing your underground martial artist in a stable full of rapper turned secret martial artists. Isn't fucking Snoop and the Dogg who... the main antagonist of that fucking game? Snoop Dogg is basically the intersection between Shokan and Slickback. It's so fucking. In that game. It is asinine and it is one of the greatest things I have seen in my life. God damn. Flavor means a lot in media. It will get you a lot of points mm. with me. I'm not sure Chainsaw Man makes sense anymore, but it's still one of my favorite comics that's out right now. But yeah, they consistently say like, Wow, Zaheer took out the Earth Queen. <laughs> took down. He overthrew the Earth Queen. <laughs> and I'm waiting for them to start saying like, Man, they went 3-0 in Overwatch with the Earth Queen. Didn't you hear? The Earth Queen's been toppled. They canceled the Earth Queen. <laughs> oh, and then when they have Cora all chained up and they're feeding her poison, right? And they have all of these fucking, like, they have, like, the fucking ice knives aimed at her and they're gonna drop her in fucking lava. Destroy the Avatar! <laughs> yep. It is, uh, tangible. It is extremely noticeable. It is extremely amusing it's not their fault oh, um, it's not their fault another particular i'm gonna bring into this mm -hmm. um something you very much enjoy so i want to make sure to ladder this up oh god that was corporate speak i'm gonna just undo that in my memory so i just wanted to bring this up sure mako gets his fight finish of the entire franchise in this fucking season it is perhaps my favorite moment of the entire series yes and it's awesome and i don't know if I can say anything that interesting about it, other than it's so fucking cool, but... Yeah, it's just well-arranged. It's super quick. They don't even really do a victory lap with it. Nope. It's just great. He's, you know, they pit him against the waterbender, who... 
you know, he can shoot lightning, and she's uh, and she specializes in these long water arms that connect to her body. And you know, what do you think is going to happen? And then you can make a cool little YouTube clip using the song from Metal Gear Rising when Raiden runs up the Metal Gear's arm, <laughs> and everyone has a good time with the rules of nature. I remember watching that shit live right after just begging this show to treat him better as a character. Yeah, we were... Remember when those four IGN guys were a meme for, like, two years? Just reacting to things? Oh, they've been a meme forever now. I I think they still are. I think they're still just used as a shorthand for, I, you know, like, this is cool now. Yeah. We channeled channeled a bit of IGN guy energy during that scene. It felt good. It felt good. Not much else to say, but it was great. Yeah. It was, uh... Like I said, it's probably my favorite moment in the entire series. It's probably not the best moment of the entire series. The best moment of the entire series is, of course, um, uh, Tenson's fight with the Red Lotus. It, it, it's hard to not dodge. in fucking question, really. But no, it was. It was. It, it, it just felt like it was the one for me. Yeah. Anyway, this has been Weeaboo Hell. It's Weeaboo Hell, and I just want to say in terms of retrospectives on the Avatar universe, mm-hmm. that outgoing President Donald Trump can drown and come. I hope he drowns and come. Drown and come, Trump. Good night, everyone. Fuck 12. <laughs> Fuck 12.